0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. We're just one week out from the coronation of King Charles III, so today we're debating whether he should be the last British monarch, and whether for better or worse, where would the UK be as a nation without its royal family? Charing this debate is broadcaster and academic, Philippa Thomas. Here's Philippa with more.
2: We're just one week from the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla, due to take place on the 6th of May in Westminster Abbey. In recent years, discussions surrounding the monarchy's role in modern society have intensified, with opinions spanning a wide spectrum of perspectives. And today, on the Sunday debate, we're going to explore an issue that's timely, yet draws on tensions long at the heart of British politics and identity. So our motion today is Charles III should be the last British monarch. And to delve deeper into this subject, I'm joined by two distinguished speakers with contrasting views. We have Robert Hardman, journalist, author, and royal commentator. Through his work, he's provided insights into the lives of British royals and been a strong advocate for the monarchy's continued existence and relevance. He's written numerous books on the royal family, his most recent being 2022's Queen of Our Times, The Life of Elizabeth II. And joining Robert, we have Graham Smith, prominent political activist and the CEO of Republic, a British organisation campaigning for the abolition of the monarchy. He's a passionate advocate for democratic reform and has been instrumental in leading the conversation on how the UK might transition to a republic His upcoming book, Abolish the Monarchy, Why We Should and How We Will, is available from June. So, Robert and Graham, welcome to Intelligence Squared. And for opening thoughts, Robert, I'm going to come to you first to ask, should Charles III be the last British monarch?
3: (laughs) Certainly not. Um, I think he's going to be the 41st since 1066. Um, I think we have a system that, uh, certainly, if you were starting a nation from scratch tomorrow, I'm quite sure you wouldn't say, I know, let's appoint one family in perpetuity um, to, to, to be an overall charge. But we are where we are. It's served us well. It's extremely popular. The vast majority of people are happy with it. The rest of the world certainly views it with a combination of uh, fascination and envy, and we would be very much
2: the poorer without it. And Graham, your thoughts on whether Charles III should be the last British monarch?
4: Well, of course it should. I mean, you know, the monarchy is completely wrong in principle. It stands against most of our values in terms of democratic values, the notion of equality and the rule of law. It is an institution that relies on secrecy, which abuses public money, abuses public office. And I don't think it's going too far to say that it's corrupt in the moral sense. And it's bad for our constitution. It centralizes an awful lot of power in the hands of government. And, uh, you know, it, it is an obstacle to serious reform. So, you know, there's no final reason why we should put up with having a coronation or, or a king when we could have an election and a step to a parliamentary democracy that actually serves the people well.
2: I'm going to let you come back a bit, on the both of you, on the central idea here. Because, Robert, the, the idea that the monarchy is simply an outdated institution – and also not neutral but possibly pernicious in its effects on British society is a powerful argument that's got to be addressed.
3: Well, I, I, I just simply disagree. Um, it's it, it's very much, it's, it's extremely modern. I mean, the other week uh, I was with the king in Germany on his state visit, the first state visit of his reign. I mean, the reaction you saw there, it wasn't rooted in some sort of nostalgia. Um, they weren't there looking at some curio. You know, this was a very powerful piece of statecraft. Uh, We live in an era of soft power. Um, While I was writing my last book, I, I interviewed Professor Joseph Nye of Harvard University, the man who devised the entire concept of soft power. And he said to me that Britain has two absolutely unrivaled soft power assets that the rest of the world does not have. One is the English language. And with that, everything from Shakespeare, you name it, the fact that most of the world speaks English. The other, he said, is the monarchy. And and yes, Britain has all sorts of problems. And the monarchy has all sorts of problems. It's far from perfect. As I say, There's, it's irrational. But uh, so many things in the world are irrational. and And, and in a soft power world, uh, when we're struggling for preeminence and position, it's absolutely a vital tool. And like I said, we'd be absolutely insane to get rid of it.
2: So, Graham, that core point why throw away an unrivaled soft power asset?
4: Well, I don't buy this idea at all. I mean, the idea of soft power has been um, questioned quite widely by other academics. And, uh, you know, it's been pointed out that soft power usually comes um, backed up by quite a lot of hard power. Um, and, I don't buy the idea that the monarchy is an asset in that sense. I think that, you know, if you are with the royal tour, you're going to see crowds of people come out to see someone – then, of course, it's going to look like it's hugely popular. But most Germans were largely ignoring it and are not that interested in it. In the same way that in the UK... No, no, that's not true, Graham. I mean,
3: look look at the media. Look at the media
4: coverage. In the UK, most people are not particularly uh, interested or enthusiastic about the monarchy as well. I mean, here in the UK, only 15% uh, in a a recent poll said that they are very interested in the coronation. Um, A majority said that they aren't interested in it, which is uh, similar to polling around... um, Other big events. So, and I just don't see any evidence that a visit by a royal to a country actually adds to our power or influence. And we, we, other than the fact that it can damage our influence and our standing, as it did in the Caribbean when William and then Edward went there last year, and, uh, you know, as Andrew does with his um, continuous saga of avoiding, you know, answering all these very serious accusations. So, I just don't think that that's a credible uh, line of argument. But, you know, as a domestic institution, it only really serves the interests of the royals and the interests of the politicians and those in government and those in power. And, you know, it does not serve the people of Britain.
2: Well, let's stay with that idea of as an asset or not. Robert, the word evidence was used. What what evidence uh, is that the, the monarchy is is an asset, whether it's an economic asset in terms of tourism or in terms of diplomatic wins.
3: Well, I, I suppose you could look at it in three ways. You know, there's the, the sort of the, the positives, the neutrals and the sort of negative power of monarchy. But I mean, on the positive side, you know, Graham and I can argue till the cows come home about whether they're value for money. So, I mean, I I, I sort of defer to outsiders on that. There's a Uh, An American outfit called Brand Finance, which reckons that the annual value of the monarchy to Britain PLC is about 1.7 billion, which is way way in excess of whatever it might cost us. Financially, every country needs a head of state. We're going to need one, whatever. Um, if if Graham you know, were to have his way, um, we'd still need a head of state. Now that costs money. The last available figures for the French presidency put it at well. It's, it's very hard to quantify actually because although people say that, that the monarchy is very secretive, at least it does publish its its figures every year. Uh, not maybe in the detail that we'd like, but we have some idea of what it costs. Uh, it's impossible to find out what a lot of presidencies cost, but um, some of them cost a good deal more. So I mean, on, on the cost front, we're always gonna we're always gonna have that with a head of state. But the, the point is, do we want a head of state that no one has actually heard of or was very interested in? Or do we want a head of state who, uh, when their family goes, whether it's a marriage, uh, a, a coronation, a, a funeral or whatever, the, the sort of billions around the world tune in? I mean, the largest single assembly of world leaders outside the UN General Assembly took place in London last September, when pretty much the head of state of the entire planet came to London. Now that is that's not a soft power. I mean that that's sort of diplomacy on, on on a level that that nobody else can match. Um, I, I'm not gloating. Evidence, here. I'm not saying you're Yo, be better truth? than anyone else. I'm just saying why would you want to dispense with that level of uh, of influence? Um, can and, I and, come and,
2: in here to and, ask both yeah. of you actually? Um, and I, Graham, I'll come to you first on this. When we're talking about the value of monarchy or otherwise, we maybe need to look at the Charles-Elizabeth question. The, the overwhelming representation of heads of state, presidents, monarchs in London, that sort of could have been due to Elizabeth, her longevity, her achievements, or the respect to the monarch. You know, it might, it might be hard to separate them, Robert. But I would appreciate both your thoughts on how much Charles is of value to the United Kingdom, to this nation. Uh, Graham?
4: I question the whole premise of this notion of uh, of power and value and all the rest of it. I mean, the you know heads of state going to a funeral, which is you know the first one in seventy years where people turn up. I don't I don't see any evidence that that has made it the slightest iota of difference to our diplomatic position in the world or our economic position in the world, the brand finance report, going back on the finances, the brand finance report is not really worth the paper it's written on. I mean, it offers absolutely no sources or evidence uh, whatsoever, and it's been largely debunked. You know, there is no evidence that it has value as an institution in terms of soft power, and it also has, there's no evidence that it has any value economically at all, um, any value at all economically. And, you know, no one's talking about a French presidency either. So we're talking about a parliamentary republic. And if you look at Ireland, I mean, it's 4 million euros a year. Um, And over here, it's more like 345 million pounds a year when you add all the extra costs. So I, I really don't see any benefit or value to it at all. And, yes, that has changed with uh, Charles in the sense that any residual value that there was has now gone um, because people associated the Queen with the monarchy, and the monarchy with the Queen. But I don't think, uh, I think that has now evaporated, which is perhaps why support is is falling um, uh, since the Queen's death.
2: Graham, I want to, I will bring you back in, Robert, to talk about Charles' reinvention, modern monarchy. But to be fair to your view and Republic and what you stand for, Graham, the alternative, how does the alternative work? What is the best alternative if we were able to to wipe away the British royal family?
4: Well, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, this is a, it, it's quite well known. It's quite well practiced, uh, widely practiced around Europe. It is a parliamentary democracy, very similar to what we have, but made democratic. So no one is suggesting a French system or a US system. It's more similar to Germany or to Ireland or Iceland or Finland or the Baltic states. Where you have a parliamentary system with a prime minister, you would have a fully elected parliament, both houses. And the president is there to largely do a diplomatic and ceremonial role, but also to hold certain reserve powers and to guard the constitution. Now, on that score, the monarch is completely pointless, and the monarch does what they're told by the prime minister. And you would also have a degree of a written constitution. You don't have to write it all down, but you certainly put some limits and parameters around the powers of um, government and parliament. and the president is there to represent. And if you look at presidents in Ireland, Michael D. Higgins and Mary McAleese, and if you look at people like uh, Vigdis Finbobdita, who was the um, first woman in the world to be elected president of anywhere, which is in Iceland in 1980, a you know, hugely inspirational figure. There have been a number of very inspirational presidents around Europe and elsewhere. And they are they are people that have had a career. They're people that have then achieved the, um, the state's being elected head of state and then they leave office and you know, I think that is far more interesting and inspiring than, than what we have.
5: That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared.
2: And Robert, could you be interested and inspired by that? Well,
3: I, I look. I don't. I don't, for any uh, one minute, um, diminish the, the qualities and the caliber of many um, figures like um, Michael Higgins or Mary McAleese or, or, or President Steinmeier, who we saw in Germany last week. But all I can say is that uh, they do not unite the nation in the way that the monarchy does. The monarchy has a very important negative power, a blocking power, if you like, which is that because the king. Um, previously, the Queen is um, head of the armed forces. Nobody else can be because they're head of the judiciary. Nobody else can be. These are these are things that we sort of take for granted. We think, oh well, you know, don't be so silly. I mean, what does it matter? But it does matter when you go around the world, and I, I've been lucky enough to sort of cover this but I mean, I've done a, a number of tours to you know dozens of countries over many years, and one of the things that always comes through. Is a sort of level of astonishment at the stability and the continuity that we have in Britain that people abroad very much identify with the monarchy. I mean, it is extraordinary that when the Queen came to the throne, half the countries that are in the world today didn't exist in their present form. So when she turned up, people were just sort of a gog that she'd been she'd been head of state for longer than their state had existed. And this is this is just something that I think we take for granted. Um, but to have this this, this sort of, um, as it were, the, the, this, this, this blocking power, it does count for something. It counts for continuity. It counts for permanence. You know, I go back to a point I made before, and Graham and I disagree on this as well, but, um, you know, you look at something like the, the UN Human Development Index. It's sort of the index of all the countries in the world. Where would you most want to live? Which are the most, you know, all forms of sort of standards of living, be it education, health, life expectancy, everything. And it lists all the countries from one to 200. Now, there are only 27 monarchs in the world, but it's pretty unusual that in the top 20, more than half are monarchies. Now, I'm not saying for one minute that having a hereditary head of state gives you a, a better life expectancy. But what I am saying is that it leads, it fosters the conditions of stability and permanence that lead... To more cohesive societies. I'm not saying it's perfect. Of course, it's not. But I'm saying that it's is a not. I mean, there've been
4: a number of a number of very common fallacies that you've just repeated there. I mean, the point is that the well, you made you know, some fallacies, we, Graham. You said the
3: monarchy costs 340 million quid a year, which it doesn't.
4: Well, it does, but I mean, the well, at least probably more than that. But I mean, the, the no. um, you know the fallacy is that this notion that it has a blocking power—it doesn't have a blocking power. The, the monarch is there to do what the prime minister um, tells them, and that's what they will do. And you know, the notion that the monarch is head of the military or the judiciary, therefore someone else can't be. I mean, the government is the one that has the power, and the government also has more or less complete control of parliament, and it has complete control of crown powers. Um, and what government wants, government usually gets unless, only unless, its own backbenchers revolt and stop it from uh, doing what it wants. So, you know, the crown is a source of excessive centralization of power in Downing Street. Um, and the monarch will not and cannot do a single thing to block the power of government. So that is a, a complete fallacy. And the idea that it creates a stable society, I mean, we're not that stable. We have half of Scotland wanting to break away. We've had 30 years of political conflict in Northern Ireland. I mean, it's an interesting idea of stability. But on all of those indices, which often get thrown around by monarchies, again, I've gone through all of these indices, or quite a lot of them, and it's roughly half. It doesn't suggest any relationship whatsoever with monarchy and stability. What's more likely is that stable countries are less likely to have the sort of social and political pressure to get rid of monarchy. So stability might save their monarchy, but monarchy certainly doesn't generate stability. But what's most important is that in those indices, you can say that monarchies are well represented in them. Um, but Britain isn't in the top 20 of some of those indices, and We're not in the top 20. Well, I don't think we're in the top 10 of any of them can at I all. In,
2: can I bring in some of the voices that are not in the room? And I want to ask you both to think about what the monarchy means or can mean potentially to British 20-somethings, to new voters, to those who are going to have the future of our country in their hands. So, Robert, you've got Charles... And William coming up behind him, presumably with some big ideas. What could monarchy mean? If we're if we're saying let's be positive, it can become more relevant, not less. What would that mean?
3: Well, monarchy has to remain relevant. I mean, it, it's it's otherwise it, it it fizzles out. I mean, the greatest threat to monarchy is not is not the mob. It's not the guillotine and the tombro. It is it's just irrelevance and essentially people not caring. So it has to reflect the nation to itself. I mean, I think this idea of having big ideas and, and, and introducing big things as if it's a sort of brand of um, toothpaste or, you know, having a revamp, it, it doesn't do that. Monarchy never works like that. It, it moves slowly, incrementally. I mean, that was the Queen's great strength. She never actually uh, suddenly came out and announced some big new policy in lights. But if you looked at the monarchy at the start of her reign and at the end of the, her reign, I mean, it had changed more on her watch, frankly, than at um, in, in any time in, in in centuries. I mean, everything had changed from the structure of the, the household to the line of succession or whatever. But what you did find was that the that- she was never in fashion, but she. if you're in fashion, you become out of fashion. You, you move with the times. You reflect, as I say, you reflect the nation to itself. It's not big-ticket stuff. You're going around the country every day. You're going to bits of the country, which it won't make national headlines, you know, when the Princess Royal turns up in Bristol and Prince William turns up in Newcastle. But, you know, that's going on day after day, every day, all over the country, and over time it adds up. And it, it does lead to this extraordinary, this sort of deep-rooted... Um, connection that politicians simply don't have, and, and and going back to stability, Graham mentioned stability. I mean, when I was again writing writing my last book, I talked to President and former President George Bush. Just it was a week after the mob had had, had stormed the Capitol in Washington, um, and he did say that you know you know I mean I'm, he's he's no monarchist. He said I don't want George III back, thanks very much. But uh, you've got to concede that that. Wouldn't happen in Britain, and we've we, we've seen that in in in, in France in, in in recent weeks, a sort of chaos there. I'm not, you know, it, what I'm saying is it that it does it does engender a sense of continued instability because it separates. You know, we, we can we can go to an event and the prime minister can lay a wreath and the monarch can lay a wreath and everybody can hate the prime minister, but they don't hate the monarch. It's a split system, and it serves us well. And it's it, assuming you know, again
4: it, that it, it's not. Is. Sorry, go on, then. Sorry, I mean, there's a lot of assumptions here. I mean, you know, you're assuming, what if people do hate Monarch? I mean, this is the problem is that we can elect people to be head of state. And, you you know, you mentioned earlier that um, elected heads of state like uh, those in Ireland don't unite the nation. But, I mean, they have poll ratings far higher than um, approval ratings far higher than Charles does. Um, We have, uh, you know, his poll ratings are 20% um, lower than those of the the Queen. You know, there's an assumption that because the Queen happened to um, sustain a level of support and popularity, that that is therefore... Symptomatic of the monarchy itself, but I mean, you know, this stability and continuity is just a a way of saying, well, it's not changed, um, and we've still got the same person. But you know, that could have been uh, an opportunity over the last seventy years and over the next hundred years, instead of three men from the same family, of choosing people who actually are from our own communities and who are representative of our communities and who are inspirational and interesting figures. And, you know, that, that those opportunities for change are actually quite important.
2: Can I ask both of you also to, to think, to turn now to Britain in the world? Graham referenced the Caribbean and, and, and very mixed fortunes of royal trips in recent times. And surely this is a case for reinvention. And the question I want to put to both of you is, is, the, the, uh, is there a better chance of kind of reinventing uh, and modernizing those relationships with Charles and William? Or without Robert, how how can it be done?
3: Well, um, I mean, the, the, the king is king of 14 nations other than the UK, and he's not there because he's sort of clinging on, desperate for power, thinking of ways of, of, of hanging on to his throne. He's there because the monarchy was invited to be there. Uh, there is very much, and it's been, it's been
2: disinvited serially. Well, from, from it already
3: has been in, 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 in Barbados, certainly last uh, last uh, 2021 November, um, Barbados. Uh, decided, it no longer wanted the queen as as monarch. But there was Prince Charles at the ceremony to say, "Well, good luck." You know, it's it's if you're a constitutional monarch, which he now is, you you abide by the wish of the people. I mean, that that, go, that goes without saying. You don't you, you're not up for election. You don't go out there and sort of campaign to be there. The reason that um, the queen was queen of Barbados. Uh, when, when Barbados went independent was because um, the, the, the Barbados invited her to to, to to be its uh, head of state. I mean, that's what happened when um, all these um, former British territories became independent. Uh, some took the option right away to become presidencies, republics. Um, some uh, hung on to the monarchy for a bit and then changed, such as Trinidad and Tobago, for example. Others, um, a, 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 including Jamaica and St Vincent and, and Belize and uh, Antigua, um, in the Caribbean, but uh, 14 in total around the world, um, decided they wanted to retain the monarch. Now, if that's what they want, then the monarch is duty-bound to say, well, I'm, you know, I will serve you. But if they, if they have a fa- free and fair referendum and say, no, thanks, actually, we would like you to go, uh, we want to replace you, well, of course, the monarch goes along with that. That's that's the nature of democracy. I mean, it is quite interesting that in recent years we have
2: had interesting though that they might get they might get that choice, but we don't. Well,
3: we can have that choice. It's entirely down to our politicians. There is absolutely nothing to stop a, a Graham setting up a party or, or any any existing political party passing a motion and saying we'll have a referendum on this. I mean, the, this is a sort of fallacy that you can't ever vote you you know a British monarch in or out. I mean, you get a Papua New Guinea. They they voted the Queen in in 1975. They, they were starting again and, and, and she got a call saying will you please come and be our head of state so sometimes you get voted in Sometimes
4: you're you there. can't vote to monarch account, you can only vote... And,
3: uh, you can have. Now, hang on, Graham, any political party, and they debate it from time to time, the Liberal Democrats did have a policy for a while, they, they've got rid of it now, but they did have a policy of holding a referendum on this. You can do it. It's it's what politics is there for. I have to say, I mean, I've spoken to a number of Labour politicians who just said, oh, you know, and these are Republican Labour politicians, by the way, they said, oh, God, no, Brexit was bad enough, please don't let us have that. But, but the fact but is, we, we could have a vote talk, on it, yeah. but we don't want one.
2: And talking about choices, Graham, if it's such a self-evident case, if the monarchy is outdated and it's bad for British growth and the future of Britons, why aren't politicians running behind your banner? Well,
4: there's a whole load of reasons why that's the case. But, I mean, you know, it's not the case. You can simply vote out a monarch, and that's the problem. You can get rid of the monarchy, certainly, and that's the But why haven't you got political Um, steam
2: behind your courts? Well, because there has been. I mean,
4: the idea that the – I mean, Robert said earlier that, you know, the monarch doesn't go around campaigning. They certainly do campaign. They campaign a lot, but they don't dress it up as campaigning. They they dress it up as, you know, in all these ceremonies and visits. And well, all they do the
3: their job. That's true. They do their job. I wouldn't go to campaign. And there's
4: been um, a real resistance to having a serious and balanced debate in this, on this issue for a very long time. That's starting to change, but, I mean, it's, um, it certainly isn't an issue that gets fair representation through uh, through broadcasters, and um, it very often gets dismissed. Part of the other reason is that politicians actually, when they get into government, they want the monarchy there. So they want to hold on to that power that it gives them. It gives them enormous amounts of power once you're in government. You know, we do have this is the biggest problem with the monarchy is that it leaves us not with a this blocking mechanism, that Robert imagines, but with a impotent head of state that can do nothing at all and has no constitutional purpose other than signing off their powers to the prime minister. And you have the crown power in the hands of government, and so they don't want to get rid of it. So it, it serves the interests of. Well,
2: I'd like to give you a platform at this point. It would be great to hear from you as you go around the country. That you know the four nations. You know, talking about your cause and the need for a republic who are your most enthusiastic audiences?
4: Well, it varies enormously. I mean, at the moment, the polling is certainly showing a growing gap between um, younger people who are increasingly pro-republic and the sort of over 60s who are by quite a wide majority uh, still in favor of the monarchy. Um, I do see people changing their minds quite quickly because um, when we have debates and talks and things, because most people don't actually care that much about it and don't really sit down and critically think about it. And they don't hear all the arguments for or against that often. Um, So I often see people, I did a debate in London um, with an older audience generally, um, and they went from 25% on our side to 55% on our side by the end of the hour. Um, So it does vary. But I mean, as I said, the most common view in my experience of the monarchy around the country is largely indifference. And that indifference tends to, at the moment, lend itself to saying, yes, no, let's keep it, because people believe this idea that it's profitable, which it isn't. They believe that everyone else loves it, and they believe it's harmless, which it isn't. So they, they kind of have this sort of indifferent default, you no, know, keep it. But, um, but there is a growing, I think, awareness of the failures of the monarchy, and I think there is starting to become a, a, a wider debate about, about those failures and about the alternative.
2: In that case, if I can finish our debate today by putting to each of you the question let's imagine the monarchy is abolished however it's happened the monarchy is gone in britain what impact does that have on britain and graham i'm going to come to you first to develop the thinking that you were giving us there and then come back to robert for some final thoughts the monarchy goes what does it mean graham well people
4: are saying that you know a jubilee or coronation is historic. I think there'll be nothing more historic than Britons going to the polls and voting for a republic and then electing their head of state. That will be global news. That will be a huge moment in our history. And it will be a hugely proud moment in our history where we throw off these last remnants of this bizarre feudal system and actually choose one of our own to be our president. I think that will be hugely profound. I think it will have a profound and positive impact on the way in which we celebrate and cherish our democratic values. It will give us an opportunity to vastly improve our constitution, um, and then we can actually evangelise those values and, and democracy and all that kind of thing uh, without having to compromise any of those principles by making room for things like the monarchy and the lord. So I think it will be uh, hugely powerful, hugely inspirational and the British head of state, you know, going back to this one of these points before about, you know, people sort of say well, you know, everybody knows who the king is and, and uh, they have this soft power, but no one knows who the queen of Denmark is or who the king of Netherlands is. The reason why our monarch is well-known is because they're the monarch of this country. It's this country that makes our monarch well-known and our president will be well-known for the same reason. And it will be someone who is chosen by us, who represents us and who will be an inspiration.
2: Graham, thank you. And Robert, we are now looking at the coronation of Charles III and Queen Camilla next week. What if that's the final coronation and the end of the monarchy is nigh? What does that do for or to the United Kingdom?
3: Well, I, I, I think it's sort of I, I certainly can't see it happening because it, it's overwhelmingly popular um, and I don't think the British people are ever going to be um, dumb enough to commit such a, a willfully kind of suicidal act of, of, of sort of national diminution. I mean, we we would just become a, a, a sort of pleasant irrelevance um, drifting somewhere off the northern coast of France, if we if you take that to its logical conclusion. We'd be less stable. Uh, we'd be far more divided. I mean, golly, if, if Brexit was bad, I mean, just think what that would be like. But uh, I think the rest of the world would just think we had taken leave of our senses because you, you, you know, you, you you just go back through, um, and it's not it's not just about the, the magnetic power of, of Elizabeth II. It is about the institution. It is about that sense of, of, of stability, and I, I've, I've just seen it in in so many different parts of the world where um, that there's a recognition that it's something that Britain has. I mean, we haven't even touched on the, the Commonwealth in this debate. And that, again, I think that's one of the, the Queen's very great achievements. But what did all the Commonwealth leaders, there are now 56 member states, it's larger than it's ever been, what did they all agree on? Nemcon in 2018, they agreed to make Charles, it's not a hereditary position, by the way, uh, they agreed to make Charles their next head. These are all countries that don't have to belong to this thing. They can resign at any time. They don't have yeah, to have Charles on their head. But it they, they just... see it. they see the worth of the monarchy. They see that it can do things that politicians can't do. All I would say is that that simply: if you want if you want to see the power of monarchy, rewind to 2011. Look at the Queen's visit to Ireland. Look at what every politician tried to achieve in in in, in, in harmonising UK Irish relations over many years. That one week, it was an astonishing piece of stateswomanship yeah. and it we'll was politicians who really
4: resolved anglo irish okay, relations okay a final
2: a final a final 20 seconds for each of you because this is chapter one there could be many more debates but i think we've got a very representative feel but a final i'm going to be be a hard line on this please uh, graham a final thought from you
5: I think it's
4: appalling to suggest that we would be a nothing, nobody state without the monarchy. The monarchy is a a trivial little uh, sideshow, which is a corrupt institution that does not provide stability. We should aspire to far better and to choose our head of state and to have a much more democratic constitution that is only going to serve us well in the future.
2: Graham Smith, thank you. Robert Hardman.
3: Uh, We'd be very much the worse without it. I wholly accept that it's irrational. I wholly accept Uh, that there are things we should perhaps do with it in the future. It's got to adapt and evolve, but it always will. Uh, And as as, uh, King Farouk of Egypt once said, when uh, his own throne was about to go under very soon, there'll only be five kings left, the King of Hearts, the King of Diamonds, the King of Spades, the King of Clubs, and the King of England. And uh, he's not wrong.
2: Robert, Graham, thank you. You've been listening to the Sunday Debate on Intelligence Squared. I'm Philippa Thomas. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for listening to Intelligent Squared. This episode was produced and edited by me, Catherine Hughes. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligentsquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years from our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligentsquad.com.